Hello and welcome. You are listening to Currents, a podcast of Big Ocean Women. My name is Dana Robb and I will be your host. The Currents podcast aims to gather women who are deliberate thinkers, women who are prepared to engage as powerful forces for good in their homes, their communities, and the world. Each quarter, we will be hosting a special podcast that focuses on a discussion about a book or a movie and how it relates to one or more of our Big Ocean tenants. I'm so excited to start us off with today's discussion on the book Eleni, a biography by Nicholas Gage. This book was introduced to me earlier this year by my friend Laureen Simper, and I was immediately drawn to it. I had never heard of it before, and now that I've read it, it surprises me that this biography is so little known. I think I can honestly say that no biography has impacted me more. Maybe because I'm a mother, and this is a story about a mother and her efforts to save her children. Maybe because what happened to her community is something I can see potentially happening within my own and other communities of the world. But either way, it's a phenomenal retelling of a part of history that I knew little about. So Laureen described this book to me as possibly the most beautiful tribute to a mother, and I knew that it was something I wanted to share with our Big Ocean community. And in light of the political unrest, chaos, and confusion in the world today, I feel it's very timely that we review this history so we don't repeat it. We have two guests today. I mentioned Laureen Simper, and we also have Connie Losey. And I would love it if you two ladies took a minute to just introduce yourself. Great. I'm Laureen. And Dana and I met, I'm trying to remember when we did meet Dana. I think it's when I came to teach some principles of liberty to big ocean mm-hmm. women. But yeah. I teach classes about constitutional principles because, I don't know, it seemed like maybe a fun hobby to save the republic. Why <laughs> not? And uh, I used to teach junior high English, which is, you know, I love to read and I loved books and I love, it was very fun to teach junior high kids to love to read. That was, that was a lot of fun. So that's awesome. I'm Connie Losey, and I've always been a book lover. I've, I probably really hung on to books after my post high school career. <laughs> um, they started to stick with me differently. And um, ever since then, I've just made a habit of collecting really fantastic books and discussing them with other people. I'm also a homeschooling mom of several children. <laughs> I have six children and some grandchildren as well. And um, yeah, that's the main theme in our home is just to really read and, and to understand what's going on and to how to apply what we've learned and what we've read. Great. Well, I'm so glad that you're both here to discuss Eleni with me and our Big Ocean community. I know you're both passionate about the story and have some great insights to share. Now for our listeners, we won't have time to discuss everything that we would like to. So I hope this discussion inspires you to pick up your own copy, gather a few friends, keep the conversations going, reach out to us and let us know what you think. Let's go ahead and start with um, a summary of the book. Laureen, will you set the stage for us? It's written by a guy named Nicholas Gage, which always kind of makes people think we're talking about the actor Nicholas Cage. No, indeed, it's actually. His his name was changed and Americanized from Gatsuyanis. He's a Greek uh, writer, and he's writing a biography about his own mother. He was kind of smuggled, actually, out of the Greek mountains in the communist revolution that happened after World War II. They had a communist revolution so eerily similar to things that we're seeing now, but this little mountain village wanted to take these children and ship them across the border to communist countries for their safety, so they'd be better fed. It was such a propaganda campaign. And this woman, Eleni, Nicholas Gage's mother, got them out. Her husband was in America at the time. So in the very first chapter of the book, you find out from this man that his mother was tortured and killed for doing that. And he puzzles this out 
kind of does investigative reporting to put together what her life looked like then and then find this man who had been responsible for really in a petty way, you know, vindictively torturing her and killing her as an example to the village for, for disobeying, for, for stepping out of line. It's interesting the way that he writes it. You say something really unique about his voice. Give us a little bit of that insight. Probably the thing that touches me the most about the way it's written. You can tell he's a really fine writer, but as so often happens with the biography, there's kind of a dispassionate voice of a person who has done the research to learn who this person is, which is absolutely true because this little boy last saw this living, breathing woman when he was nine years old before he was smuggled out of Greece. And so it's got that tone of any other, almost a documentary style, you know, that tone of a, of a dispassionate biographer. But then there will be these moments, and excuse me for getting emotional, it's the thing that stays with me about this book. He is, he'll have a memory and it will be a real memory of a real mother. And, and, and so it has these shifts, but it doesn't happen very often. It keeps the book from being overly sentimental, but it makes it so much more poignant that you can tell it's someone that just, oh, deeply, deeply impacted the character of who he became as right. a man. And so there's just something about that juxtaposition of dispassionate biographer, little boy remembering his mother that is just unbelievably tender. Yeah, it's beautifully written. Connie, I want you to take us back to this village where the story takes place. What, what is life like in Leah? This is the, the little village in the northern mountains of Greece. You know, it's an interesting situation and climate because it, it made me realize that you're really not safe anywhere from social engineering or conditioning or maneuvering and and as remote as Leah is and and the way it's um, positioned in in these mountain ranges it's just it's on these cliff sides and there they are a community of and it's mostly a matriarchal community because the the men are off um, most of them are coopers and tinkerers and you know they're they're salesmen they're they're market people, so they come and go. And so the a lot of women are running the village. They've been there for generations and they they know everything about everyone. It's there's not no a privacy. There's no privacy at all. You look down into your neighbor's house, you look then up into your neighbor's house. Yeah. You're right on the And in a way that's a, a somewhat of a comfort and somewhat of a displeasure because you <laughs> you know, you can't really get around it. But mm. it also keeps everybody in this mindset that they're there for one another, you would think. It's just an interesting and, and also they're obscure. They don't have much outside influence. They're not impacted by modern things in the right. 40s. Then, yeah, the, I was going to say in the 1940s, they don't have indoor plumbing. They yeah. don't have electricity. They're, they're still very Yeah, it's just a very sheltered. remote. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very remote. So um, just the, the scene and the plot and where it takes place, it just made me realize that no matter where you live and no matter what you do, you need to be aware of your surroundings and you need mm. to know a right from wrong because some amazing things happen in this mm -hmm. book. It just tugs at my heartstrings. It does. I love something you said there. There's something really universal about this little community too. It's such a microcosm of human nature. It shows who the gossip is, who the greedy one is, who the one that jockeys for position is, who the one who always takes the high road in the human relationships is. It's just a fascinating little microcosm. Right 
of human nature. True. And that is, that's another thing he does really well, I think. I would like to yeah. add too, because it's Greece, it shows the history of their people to a certain degree, because they were very modest people. They were not exorbitant. They had like really basic Christian values. I mean, they were Greek or Orthodox and their primary, primary religion. And Nicholas and the way he explains the culture in this book was fascinating to mm -hmm. me. He gives yeah. a good picture of, of their society. So Eleni is like a lot of the other girls in that community. She is paired with her future husband. She has seen him, but she's never talked to him until she gets married. She's married at 17 years old. And I don't know if it was right before or right after she tells him, oh, I won't be able to go back with you to America because he's been living in America for 15 years. He wanted a Greek wife. So he comes back to this, his hometown. She's like, I'm not going back with you because I need to stay here with my family and take care of my parents. And that, that's who is part of their culture and their tradition. So he understood that. He stuck, stuck around for a year, went back, and then he goes back and forth over the years. They eventually end up with five kids and he's with her right before there's like lockdown, you know, during World War II, the, the Germans do come in for a little bit and he, they lose communication off and on, but pretty much for like 10 years, they don't see each other. In fact, that time that he is there right before the war starts is the last time that he sees Eleni. So the whole story takes place with him in America and her providing and taking care of her children. And as we, as we pull in some of the stories and things that happen in, in this book, I want to pull them into the lens of big ocean women and our tenants. And I've picked four. We could, we could talk about all 12 of our tenants, but I'm going to focus on four that I think really stand out. The first one that I want to discuss is we greatly value the contributing role of families. And if you go to our website, you can read a little bit more about this, but I want to share briefly from the website. The family unit has the potential to protect, shape, and lift humanity more than any other institution. Individuals working in families can accomplish more good in the world than individuals alone. We are like links in a vast intergenerational chain of family members and relatives that span across time. As I read the story, I really saw that those with family support fared better than those without. And every family member, just like in our own families, there are some that give a little bit more and there are some that don't give very much, but everybody had something to contribute. So let's talk a little bit about the contributing role of families. We could start with Christos. I mean, he's the one that's the farthest away. And I, you know, that it, it frustrated me as I read the book. Like, why does he not see how important it is for him to be with his family? Let's, let's talk about that a little bit and how that shaped the, the story. And then maybe the, the gift that he was able to give. Well, I know Lorraine and I are probably on the opposite spectrums of that particular topic. We've mentioned it a little bit before, but um, in another- Well, it's good to have that little different point of view. Go ahead, yeah. Connie. <laughs> You know, I actually really um, learned to appreciate him as Eleni's husband. He had the benefit of being in America and having all of the freedoms offered to him. So he tried to build a, a life and it was actually a humble life, but he was able to save it like a lot of um, immigrants do, save their money and send it home to, to their family. And so his wife ended up being kind of the, the talk and the envy of the town because she, even in their the little that they had, she had more than, than everyone. And so she was known as the Americana because of it, which set her apart automatically because 
it, you know, those little envyings and stripes and frustrations were brewing with people who just like to have something to be angry about. And just having her <laughs> husband across the ocean was, was one of them. So anyway, he, you know, he, you could say he was far removed from the family, but I think in his own way, he tried to be um, a part of his family. The one thing we ought to mention is there ended up being four daughters and then one son following those four girls. And in Greek heritage, you know, the son is the, is the prize. And so those girls had, they had a lot to do for those girls outside of, you know, or inside their culture. And because they, they kind of weren't the foremost liked things above men. And there's a particular part in the story that I, well, there's probably two, but the one Eleni gets, she's very ill. She's very ill and she is dying. And he gives up everything in America to go and pluck her out of the remote village of Leah and take her to a larger city. And he, he recognizes right away that she is just worn out. She's starving. She needs the basic necessities of life to heal. And he does that for her. And it's the first time that she's been away from her yeah. little village. Yeah. So it's eye-opening. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. that is, it was a, actually a big blessing to her because she could see there was more than what was just mm-hmm. in her village as, as a woman, especially where, you know, she could have been repressed for her whole life and never have had that experience. But she, he was, he was, and he lost everything for that trip. Mm-hmm. He, he lost everything. And, and then secondly, he went on to America again. She went back to her remote village. It was just this small period of time. But at, at some point in the book, yeah, he doesn't get to see or experience all the atroci- atrocities that his family goes through. But he ends up bearing the brunt of it at the end of the story. And he sure rises up to it. Mm-hmm. Right at the end. I love how he, he, his children come to him. And he takes ownership and he leads them through life and sets them up and, and they all become really successful. Laurie, though, I know you, you are troubled and I was too with like his lack of presence. And now, you know, he, it was kind of a pride thing, right? That he stayed in America. I would love to hear it. It felt like like it to me. Yeah. I think it's pretty simplistic actually. It really was that frustration that you speak of that. I just thought this is not an intentional father. It felt like she was almost a, um, and, and I really acknowledge everything Connie said is those were his redeeming qualities. Absolutely. But it did feel like, you know, when push comes to shove, he, he stepped up, but it felt, it pride's a good word for it, Dana. Mm-hmm. It felt like a prideful thing that he was prosperous enough, even though he lived so modestly by, you know, American standards, even in the forties, it was a status symbol to him in the United States to say he kept a wife in mm. Greece. And of course, it was a status symbol to him in the village that he lived in America and had enough to send her to have her live in a you know, bit of a, a, I mean, when we talked about the communist encroachments in this village, one of them, thanks to the fact that they don't have a third amendment, is that she ends up, her house gets co-opted for the military because she has one of the finest houses in the village. Mm-hmm. And um, and, and that's a prideful thing to him. So like I said, I just, it's that intentional presence in a family that just really troubled me. It just never really mm-hmm. did go away. <laughs> yeah. And it is interesting how, even though husbands were away, they were the still sought after for the counsel and the guidance before big decisions were made. And so when her communication with him is cut off, how that affects her um, ability yeah. to make decisions. We also have Eleni's daughters really stood out to me as carrying a big weight for the family. She has four daughters. Uh, the oldest is Olga. And then there's 
Kanta and Glyceria and Fotini or Fotino and, and Kanta, she's the one with her head on her shoulders. She's not the oldest, but she's the one that can really handle things. And so Eleni relies on Kanta's help when they need someone to go take care of the sheep or when the grandma needs help baking bread. She's the one that's always sent off to be able to take care of certain things that Eleni cannot do on her own. And without her help, they really wouldn't have survived through mm. the war. Then there's Glyceria. There's an escape plan. We've talked about she's that. She's not quite the youngest. Third. third yeah. yeah. So she's the third out of the five. And the gorillas, I've asked somebody from each family or each home to go and harvest the wheat that they're using to feed their soldiers, right? So Glyceria finally volunteers, but... Elena's sister won't volunteer. Her mother won't volunteer. And they, they're trying to escape and somebody has to stay behind. And so Glyceria offers herself. And I thought that was such a noble and brave thing for her to do. She stays behind to help her family. I realized in the story though, she's probably the most clever to get herself away from it in the end, mm. where she mm. is living in a country. country. She was clever enough to be able to handle she, it. Yeah, to handle it. She was yeah. headstrong enough to have a, have a mind about her. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, we have the family members who did not help so much. So Eleni's father oh. and mother, they, oh. <laughs> so let's talk yeah. about keep all, for just a minute. This, listeners, we were all rolling our eyes at this point. <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, I don't, I don't think anybody could be troubled with a more difficult father than, than uh-huh. Eleni was. But what's cool is she still held her whole family together. She still supported them, even though they were difficult. But she goes to her father, Kitso, for help. Tell us a little bit about what happens. Well, I mean, he denies her. She's, they're starving. She needs, they need food. She needs food for her children. And she goes to her father, and he denies her. But in the end, and there's a reason I've decided that mm-hmm. he, is, he is so such a struggle and such a terror to his family. And it's because of some choices he made when he was younger and he just lived by guilt and he couldn't ever seem to get out of that mm-hmm. because he, he ended up getting flour for his daughter that she requested. He wasn't even nice about it, but he did do it. And so he did love her. And it's, it's mentioned more than once that um, she was his favorite. Mm-hmm. And so he had a way about him. It was just a really terrible way. Cause he was basically just mean to his whole family hard and mean. But yes. I do find it ironic that he never became a communist. Mm. He did not have the heart for that. He had the heart to be mean to everybody around him, but he could not cross that. Yeah. And mm. he's really one of the only men. There are only a few, and he's one of the few that stayed behind. Yeah. Um, most of the men fled when the guerrillas came back and there was that civil war between the communists and the Okay, correct me here. Is it the fascists and the communists or the fa- communists and the non-communists? Like, how do we well, just... They would, be, they would be considered royalists. They were still... Royalists. For the okay. Yeah. Okay, that's the way we want to put it. Okay, yeah. Um, most of the men fled. Those that had not, were not off tinkering and selling, they fled and disappeared. And so it really was on the women for sure. Yeah, I, I love the example of family. And um, Lauren, there was something that you had said about mothers, mothers who know... Boyd K. Packer said this in 1978 in a Latter-day Saint Church's um, Relief Society. He was saying that we need women who, women of discernment was the word he used, who can detect trends in society that are shallow or even dangerous. I remember him saying it at the time. I was, I wasn't, it was a year before I married, but then I came across it again as a mother and it really struck me what 
that takes for a woman to have that because there's something about being out of the flow of the society. I think you have to really be, I, I know there would be working women who would probably really take my head off for saying that, but I've learned it from coming out of that flow myself and sacrificing a career. And it's not to say that women who work can't have that discernment, but I think it's harder when the woman keeps the same pace and flow and rhythm of the world and doesn't step out of it. And I find it fascinating that in this little village, there's even a flow of the world. And because of the lifestyle that's been set up by this far long distant husband, Eleni is out of that flow. And she sees that village in a diff from a, through a different lens than the other women because she, she's in it, but she's not in it. And so even though it's not the same as having a career or not having a career, which is a whole other conversation for another day. But in the context of this little village, I find that fascinating that that puts her in a position to see those trends. Uh, you know, the thing that she does, I don't know if you want to get into too much detail about this, Dana, the mm -hmm. daughter that was going to have to go off and join the military and the oh, lengths yeah. to which yeah. she goes to make sure oh, that okay. that does not happen. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll save that then. But, but I just... I feel like the fact that she had been separated, it ended up really being a blessing in disguise that her husband had put her in this strange position. Really, really true. Not being in this community the same way as all those other women. It set her up to have different eyes to see what was happening. I've written the word discernment over and over and over on my notes to myself. Um, that's actually one of my- <laughs> It really, it's points. incredible, isn't it? It is incredible. And I wrote discernment like Eleni stand in the storm, be resolute and educated. She was more educated in different ways, mostly because she listened to that, like that voice, that discernment. You yeah. know, that actually leads right into our next tenant. We, I want to talk about our inner compass. We recognize and follow our intuitive internal compass to speak and act with integrity. And we believe as big ocean women that we are all born with an innate capacity to decipher which actions will bring about the most good for us and others. This is our internal compass and we can call it discernment. We can call it intuition, but it can be developed and refined through practice. And that is something that I can see Eleni had really done is really refine this because of her experiences um, and being set apart. She, I mean, there was that point when she realized she was cut off from her husband, she would have to rely on herself. And so she, I think, really went deep and used those. That's instincts. such a good way to say it, Dana. I love that. She had a vision and a glimpse of what life could look like for a better future. And at some point in the book, she decides that's exactly what her children need is she's watching the world crumble apart in Leah. Um, she's wondering why neighbor on neighbor, family on family are turning on each other. And she is trying with all her might to keep her family together. And she is bound and determined to not be separated, any of them to be separated from one another. And their, her goal is to get everybody to America. And um, so she had a vision of that. And she, she didn't budge. Like even under torture, she did not budge. Mm -hmm. yeah. There is something else, I think, this instinct that we could talk about that comes up with the women specifically during the escape. There's three instances where the, the group, there's 20 people that are trying to escape. And there's three instances during that night where there is separation and the men are just survival mode. They're just like, nope, leave them behind. We got to go. We got to get out of here or we're all going to be caught. But the women could not live with themselves. And 
someone stood up in three different situations. So out of that group of 20, not one of them was lost. Every single one of them made it out safely. And I just love that it was, it was the women who had that instinct and that, that maternal instinct to save. There's a tipping point in the book. Um, well, it's in Eleni's story. It's in her every fiber, every being. And, you know, she tolerated a lot with what was happening around her, the cultural environment, the shift, the maneuvering that was happening. She was, she was accepting what her neighbors were doing, how her family was acting, you know, because that's what you want to do. You want to, you want to just hope that everybody's making the right choices because this, this actually the story is interesting. It's not just, um, in the forties, it's not just, um, during a communist revolution. This is, this ends up being a civil war, guerrilla warfare. This is Greeks on Greeks. This isn't some other country. Right. Mm -hmm. This is Greeks on Greeks. And so she's watching things happen in her, in her, you know, people that she's known her whole life and odd things are happening and small choices and then which become mountainous problems. And it's, um, as she's watching it, and she's experiencing that she's kind of like going with the flow because that's what they're doing. They, the whole village is doing that. They're basically just going with it. But the tipping point is when, um, and this is where her maternal instincts kick into overdrive is when they decide to remove all the children from the village, like you mentioned, and she was not having that. And she recognized then the truth for the truth and the lie for the lie, what was real and what wasn't. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, I think in history, that's, that's it. You, there's a tipping point when we all go, wait, that's too far. That's too far. I'm not going to call this what it isn't anymore. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. The, the, and I realized that there is a, a lie and the lie in the whole book. And I thought this was um, the author's brilliance showing through is he kept trying to, when, when we tell ourselves what, what other people do matters. And he's basically saying, you know, the choices of other people, we keep trying to get people to change. We want them to change. But the, the truth is our own choices matter. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Eleni it's knows that. Like, she knows her own choices matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And they have big impact. Let's talk a little bit about choices because that is another one of our tenants. We are free to choose and we take responsibility for our choices and they have a ripple effect. And there were some times where it was like, okay, do we do we push against the communists or do we huddle back at home? And there was one conversation I remember she has with her cousin who's actually for communism, but she was not for her daughters being taken or her children being taken. And the term they used was pedomasoma. That was the word that was invented to talk about the taking of the children. And she was not going to stand for it, but she also wasn't going to keep quiet. And so she stood up to the communists and eventually they took her life. And her children were taken from her anyway, and, and they weren't able to escape. Where I, Eleni shares this story with her cousin trying to remind her, you know, like, okay, we have to be careful about our choices. We have to be careful about what we, what we move forward with. Um, you know, if you think of a pheasant, a male pheasant, if it's approached with danger, it's going to flare up its feathers. It's going to make itself look really big. But the mother pheasant takes those little babies and hides away. And that's what Eleni did until she couldn't anymore. She, she kept mm -hmm. herself quiet. She kept herself just providing and taking care of her family and keeping them close until it was no longer possible. I think part of the problem why, why in history and in this book, you know, you have a hard time seeing what choices are right is because, well, 
because there's subtle things that happen. Some, some things aren't subtle though. That's what boggles my mind. <laughs> like some things are pretty apparent, mm. but I think as a, as a human race, we don't, we don't understand the atrocities that others can inflict. And so, which I find crazy because especially as a socialist movement or a communist movement, tyrannical reign, you basically, they erase the atrocities from our consciousness to replace it with a false narrative just to create more atrocities. And they are trying to wipe away their, you know, the, the old ways. Choices are an interesting animal because, Mm -hmm. um, Sometimes it looks the same. Every time I think of, of a war, you always have somebody who's being tyrannical and you always have, always have the liberator, right? And sometimes their behavior is the same. So that's why it's hard to mm. identify, you know? Yeah. Like, they're all at war. So who's, who's on the right side of the exactly. war? You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and so often it doesn't matter to people, you know, and this, these liberty classes we teach, one of the things that we set up at the very beginning so people understand is that most of human history has been a pendulum swinging between tyranny and anarchy and tyrants know that they know that and so they use anarchy they use anarchy they get that pendulum swinging so there's lawlessness and a lack of law and order and a lack of trust in law and order so they can step in and promise the peace and security that people don't feel in those times of tumult and people don't care whether it's a good person or a bad person, they just want to get some sleep already. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it, they just, they are just thrilled to have life pretend to go back to normal. But every time it does historically, it's always with a loss of freedom, always with a loss of freedom until the tyranny and the oppression becomes too much. And the pendulum starts to swing back towards the anarchy when there's revolution. And then another strong arm comes in. Yeah. Uh, Nicholas says something at the end of the book, and I, I actually paraphrased it. He says, how do we get people to betray all of their moral scruples for the chance to be the center of attention? Whoa. Yeah. yeah. I want to talk a little bit about more cho- choices because there were some specific instances where people had to quickly decide something to save themselves. And a couple of questions that I came up with for myself was, what would you do to save your daughters? You know, this is something Eleni had to do a couple of times, both with the pedomasoma and then with the endartinas where, you know, they were taking the younger children away, but they were also conscripting the young girls into the army to fight with the gorillas. And Eleni makes a really awful choice. Awful choice. Like, but could she have done anything different? I don't know. You know, Eleni's so um, interesting in so many ways. And even in this way, when she has to take the chance to actually harm her own daughter to prevent her from being conscripted into leaving with the Andartinas, she, I mean, she burns her legs mm-hmm. and burns her feet to, so that they can't, she can't move. So she's injured enough that when they come and look at her, they're like, oh, they, they gasp in like horror. Like, okay, yeah, we won't take her. <sighs> well, but and it's it- just subtle enough where she can pretend that it was done in household duties. Mm-hmm. So she's, oh my goodness, look what's happened, you know? And, and so but it was for her to do that. I, I think she had to have been in such a desperate place that nothing desperate. else came to her mind. Uh, you say desperate, but I also think she was totally inspired because it right? yeah. had like yeah. a minute to think about it. Like yeah. how, because they were coming around, they were gathering them up right then. And, yes. and she knew her daughters. She's like, okay, Kanta can survive this. She's got a good head on her. Olga's not going to survive this. And I have to choose. I can't do it to both of them. I have to choose. And so she made that choice. And Olga was needed during the escape. 
she had yeah. other responsibilities In later. Fact, she steps up and she's one of the girls that rescues one of those that gets, you know, separated from the group. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Okay. And another question, what would you do to survive? This is just kind of a little funny side. There's one of the men that's left behind in the village or stays behind is Lucas. And he fakes an illness so that he's not conscripted, but he's also needed. He's one that he's the one that would, that Aleti originally goes to, to ask for help in planning and executing this escape. So he takes nettles. And if you, oh, if you've yeah, ever touched nettles, remember. you know, <laughs> oh, okay. He ties he, it around his neck. Yeah, and he creates a rash. And then he also takes, I think, hydrochloric acid down his throat every day to keep himself yeah. coughing and, and it's with a sore throat. So, and he ends up not, dying of cancer. He did. In, in, for real life yeah. because he did that. But how far would you go, you know, to save yourself, to um, save your family? The frightening thing is, and, and this isn't just this story and in the Greek, you know, occupation and then the Greek civil war. It's, this is all the time. Food is a huge motivator. So yes. in fact, that's how they were able to push the rest of the villages up over the communist block, over to the communist block countries, mm. is they yes. promised them hot soup and hot food. And they were so desperate. If you give in to the false narrative and you accept their terms, they do a false impression of what it's going to look like, the reward. And yes. basically the gorillas brought them in front of the whole village and those children that were going to be taken from their families willingly and, you know, surrender their, their freedoms and be taken to the communist block area. They were put in front of the village with thick slices of bread and marmalade right in front of Such all of the starving, starving, starving village, starving village. And as Nicholas goes on to find out later on, he, he, he does his research. He has over 400 accounts for this book. This is not a lightly researched uh, biography. He finds out that that was the last time they ever saw any decent food. So it was a lie. But and what she, a, who saw that coming, right? <laughs> right, Eleni. And, and what, a, what a motivator, right? When you're starving and you have a little bit of carrot dangled in front of you, you're going, you want to take it. But the real, reality is it's just a, yeah. 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 One of the ways that we see choices show up in the story is through another one of our tenants, the culture of abundance. You know, some of the villagers chose abundance like Eleni did, and some chose scarcity. Let's talk a little bit about some of these examples. I love this topic, especially <laughs> in this book, because I can see, um, you know, the, the scarcity thing is interesting because it's not just triggered by that word, by scarcity. There's actually a whole lot of adjectives that fall into that. And I'm going to list a few fear, jealousy, pride, gossip, deprivation, all of those low feelings, low vibration feelings in the end, that is actually what ruins right. everyone. That's such because a good they gave in to that scarcity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then you have Eleni and you have a few other people that they reject that. They, right. they go for the abundance and that means of their time of what they have to do with their hands, how they work, what they share. Eleni is gifted a whole treasure trove of stuff from her husband in America. And she, I mean, she's not wealthy. She's poor. She's yeah. as poor as can be. And she finds something for every single person in the village. Every last one she's, she's willing to share. Now she could have kept all of that and she could have used it for years and years you know, but she didn't, she just gifted. And, and part of their culture was to do that was to gift, but you know, it was, it was linens and clothing and 
little things, you know, yeah, not, not actual treasure, just little things. And she was very willing to share it. Yeah. Some things they didn't really understand, like the feather duster. <laughs> That's a funny part of the story. Yes. <laughs> the feather duster that she thinks is, is flowers that are never going to wilt. So she puts it in a vase and those Americans are so smart. <laughs> <laughs> but they think of everything. Yeah. And there's the time, I think this was during the first winter that they're occupied. Olga's complaining about a Christmas dress and, you know, she wants to look nice for their, their Sunday mass. And so Eleni comes up with the idea to turn this American blanket that she has into a Christmas dress and surprises her daughter with that. And I think it's that creativity. We can create abundance out of what's right before us, you know, not waiting for something to come, but it's, it's available for us. She's quite a remarkable character to think that she could have left and gone to America except for this sense of duty mm-hmm. to her parents. To think that she's kind of had this experience of being ostracized because of it, <laughs> because of this right choice she felt like was a right choice. And so she's ostracized because she's the wealthy Americana, and yet she's got the generosity of heart to be able yeah. to do this. I just, she really is just such. She's a remarkable character. She's, she's someone worth knowing. Those, those who oh, are listening, yeah. I, I just hope that there's an inspiration to read this book. Her story is worth remembering. She's a person worth knowing. That when you read a book like this where someone really gets under your skin like this, it's like, let me introduce you to this dear friend I have made. And she's, she's just one of those kind of remarkable people. Somebody you want to meet and yeah. you want to yeah. know and you can. Yeah. Uh, you know, Nicholas does a... At first, I was not sure about his writing style because it is a man's voice telling a woman's story. And, and then once I got into the groove and how brilliant he was in his writing, I, I, I feel so passionate about this book. It's just amazing to see all of those perspectives because as he collected information, recreated this story and, and her narrative, I mean, he had so many examples to write down and so many things to share and he um, absolutely accomplishes her voice and her narrative. He really does. Yeah. You know, there's one thing we haven't mentioned about her that I is only mentioned briefly right at the beginning. But did you remember that she is the only woman in the village who can read? Right. And That's right. That's right. He, you know, she didn't get a very long education. She was only there for a couple of years, but she would continue to write these letters out and, and practice spelling words as she's tending the family sheep and she sought after learning, you know, her cousin was continuing school. And so she would ask him to come over and tell her everything that he was learning. So she had this desire. That's one of the things that I set her up that I believe set her apart is this desire for learning. I agree. I totally agree with that. Yeah. And then there's also this, another way that sets her apart, sets her different. Remember when uh, one of the men comes back and he's got a wagon load full of clothing that had been taken from the Jews she and everybody, everybody was like, oh. I read your notes. Yeah. Everybody starts. Oh, I want this. I want this. Everybody's and He's offering it all out to everybody. And her response was no. Yeah. I can't take clothes that belong to people who are being led away to their deaths. Yeah. Wow. That internal compass again, it, mm-hmm. it's just so finely honed. The final tenet that I want to discuss is the model of powerful impact. It all comes together here. This is one of my favorite tenets. As empowered women, we recognize that our influence is vast. Our power originates from God. And like the ripples of a pond, our positive energy naturally flows outward to impact our family and then to our community 
And it's influencing us today, right? It influences the world. And this is how real and generative changes are created in the world. You know, let's talk about that impact that Eleni had on her son. Well, that statement you just read could have been her epitaph, Dana. Right. She influenced him in so many ways. Uh, You have to know um, that Nicholas wrote this book to actually avenge his mother's killer. He wrote it because he was trying to find out who actually executed her. Who was responsible. Who was responsible. Mm -hmm. So he's seeking vengeance during this whole time. And And he actually has it early on in the story. He finds out, but he's like, nope, I need all the pieces together. Yeah. Yeah. And he wants to make sure, because that's his job. He actually is an investigative reporter. He really is a journalist. And so he's put himself in a lifelong position to research. In the end, she not just saved him once out of the... The flight from grace as a child she saves him in the end and from the other side well what's so powerful about that is that when he is faced with that and has the opportunity to kill a sick old man he thinks this is not what my mother saved me for that's the idea that saved him yeah share what you wrote lying about see if i can find it that last part of eleni yeah Okay, the thing that made this book the most meaningful for me was the profound statement it makes on the importance of motherhood in two great acts. As Eleni was being executed after being vindictively and brutally tortured by a small tyrant, and I put in parentheses, is there any other kind of tyrant? Before the firing squad fired to kill her, she flung her arms high in the air and shouted, my children. It was an incredible punctuation mark of a life lived and given completely for her children. Years later, as an adult, the son who did all this research to find that small tyrant who was responsible for his mother's death drew upon that great example of his mother to keep him from taking the man's life in vengeance. Those two moments are the the moments that will stay with you, like Connie said. Right. Yeah. It's, as I read this story, I just kept hoping that, you know, there was a little twist. Oh, she actually didn't die. You know, I just kept (laughs) hoping that she made it through. And I asked the question, like, why, why did she have to die? Why did her story have to end like this? And I've really come to believe that God wanted this story to be told that without her death, all of the atrocities that had happened to the Greek people during that communist era would have gone untold because truly the people tried to just put it behind them. They just kind of buried it and they didn't want to talk about it. That's something that Nicholas discovered as he went and started researching. A lot of people didn't want to talk about it. Well, and even the whole, the resurgence of the communist movement, he was thinking, oh, we've learned our lesson. I'm going to go back to Greece. And then all of a sudden there's a resurgence and he's terror. He's like, what are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing? Why do you want to relive this again? And people wanted to wipe it away and pretend like it had never happened. And that this new, this new order that was coming along was a much improved version. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's always the biggest lie about communism is that it has been done wrong. But the problem is a wrong idea can't be done right. Mm, very true. Yeah. So I believe God really did want this story to be told and yeah, that there I are agree. so many circumstances that led to this. You know, first of all, Nicholas as a young boy overheard them and talking about taking all the kids to the village out of the village. And because initially it was a choice and then it, you know, like communism always does, it became um, requirement. And so, so he can we use modern that. day language for that, Dana, please excuse me for interrupting you, but this is important because it's happening <laughs> yeah. now. 
I think it's really important to put this in modern day rhetoric. It always starts with an opt in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then, then it subtly shifts to you might be able to opt out. And then it is mandated. That is the progressive steps every single time. I just felt like we had to add that. Forgive me. For- can, can I just yeah. capitalize on that? Please. Um, I listened to a talk recently and it was a, a legislator. He said, mechanisms of obedience become weapons for authoritarian regimes, no matter how beneficial or innocent they seem to be. But once you create them, they will be abused. There you go. Yep. So the the pattern doesn't change. It Mm. never changes. And because it's happening now, I just felt like it was important to to say that. So please excuse me. Oh, I'm glad you did. No, thank you for jumping in. Yeah. So he overhears this talking, which leads his mother to really think seriously and plan this escape. The fact that she's left behind is, is one of the other reasons why this story was able to be told. But also the fact that Nicholas was born last. And as he went to America at a young age, he was still young enough to be able to learn the language easily. And he felt so separated from his, his mother where the other children had known her and been with her more. So he was really drawn to the story. And then he was drawn to investigative journalism. And what other background would be more ideal for being able to create, recreate really? this story? Connie, you brought up the fact that he was, he was allowed into the communist countries. Yeah, well, they ha- he had some communist um, uh, pamphlets on him, and they just assumed that he was wanting to be a member of them or he was uh, promoting rather than <laughs> knowing, that, you know, yeah. in his heart that that was never going to happen. And, but they just accepted him. And so he was able to get into some of those countries where no one else was. Yeah, as he goes back and tries to get in touch with all the people that were key players in the story, he's able to go into those countries and get the information from them. And, and how sad their lives were. How... That's something I wanted to bring up. What, what, are the, what, what ended up with these people who had bought into the communist idea? Well, I recall the, well, several of the stories and the, the narratives that, were, that he wrote down. And one of them was the woman who was somewhat, uh, her mental capacity was diminished, but she saw his leather coat and she's like, is this what it would be like? You, you look so well, you know, and she was so without, and she was actually the, the town gossip. She's the one that, you know, yeah, was trying yeah. so hard to get favor with the gorillas. And so she would tell them whatever she felt like, even that, whether it was true or not, it was always just her wanting to get in with them. And, and in the end, she had such a sad life. And Nicholas recognized over and over again that what his mother did for him saved him from that life. Mm-hmm. her children fared better than anyone else in that village because of the sacrifices that she made had she not allowed them to escape she wouldn't have lost her life you know the war ended i think really soon yeah, after weeks weeks after yeah after. and she would have been fine but her children like the life that they were able to have yeah. because of that well, she would never have seen them again she would never yeah, have seen them again the one, he does go into some detail about the children who were taken how few of them ever returned to Greece because the purpose of sending them was not to feed them as Connie mentioned earlier, but rather to indoctrinate them into communist principles. Exactly. Well, we're coming to the end of our discussion today, but I want to ask you two ladies, what is your biggest takeaway? I have a lot of takeaways, but few that I would like to leave is back to the discernment, that level of 
being connected to your God and to know what is happening despite, despite the storm, you know, whatever it is, it's a personal storm, a community storm, a worldwide storm, whatever, to be that connected to your God and to know at moment to moment what to do. And also that family is the greatest position that we have. It's, it's what saved these children. It's what actually saved Eleni, even in her torture and in her killing, it saved her to have her family. I, I can only echo that, Connie. That's beautiful because really that moment where she throws her arms up over her head and says, my children, tells you that in her mind, it was worth it because she saved her children. Mm -hmm. And that just drove everything she did. I, I told Dana when she read this book review that I'd written that made her want to read the book, I have said that there are four or five seminal biographies or autobiographies that have really helped me see the world stage for what it really is, and this is one. I think that's the reason it will stay with me because it was a real key part of my education to become a woman like Eleni would be my prayer, you know, <laughs> that I would have that kind of discernment. And that, that, I love the way you said that, Connie, because you do have to be connected to God for God to be able to give you that lens to see the world for what it really is. The trends that might be popular or even dangerous, it's only God who can show that to you. And you've got to be connected to him and pay a price, a spiritual price for him to reveal it. Mm -hmm. I want to stand on top of like mountaintops and throw the book at people like words, <laughs> so everybody has to read it and be like, please, and please just reject gossip and fear and hatred because that will ruin us all in the end. Instead, yeah. become like a Lenny and just do the, you know, be good. <laughs> yeah. When I think about this book, I just want to hold on to my kids, share some more moments with them, and just appreciate more the opportunity it is to be their mother. And second, I, I'm holding on to the hope that I can still have an impact on my kids, regardless of the mistakes I've made, because there are a few times when Eleni makes some mistakes or she treats even Nicholas poorly, and he doesn't realize until later that what she was doing is really to help him. And so I'm hoping, regardless of those mistakes that I make, that there are times I feel like I've failed that there is hope that I still can impact my children for good. Yes, they can see that overall tapestry that the dark threads are just part of the whole. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you both for joining me today. This has been a wonderful discussion. And for our listeners, if this is your first introduction to Eleni, I highly recommend getting yourself a copy. Be prepared to be brought to tears, but ultimately to be amazed at the power of one woman to make a difference in the world. Thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to Currents, a podcast by Big Ocean Women. You can find us on the internet at bigoceanwomen.org, on Instagram and Facebook. Content created by me, Dana Robb, and our guests, Connie Losey and Lauren Simper. Our music is first drained by In Post, editing and production by Aromi Studio and Productions. Please join us again for in-depth discussions about interesting ideas and fascinating people who are trying to make a difference in their communities.